0: Hey, this is Big Rev. Thanks for tuning in to Masterclass Theology, a weekly podcast where we study books of the Bible a verse at a time and apply it to our lives. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let's rock. Well, welcome to Masterclass Theology. I am Big Rev.
1: And I'm Professor D. And I'm Crockpot.
0: We have the pleasure of being in a wonderful chapter of Isaiah tonight. This is session six of our 10-session series. In Isaiah, we are in Isaiah chapter forty, and this is it's it's a long chapter, but it is a theologically loaded chapter. So we have a lot to go through tonight, and so let's begin with the word of prayer. God, thank you so much for your word, and for preserving it for us for our study, that we may not only just enjoy the text, but we may be encouraged by by this text. Excuse me, that we may understand what you wish us to understand as we as we move forward in this. Capricious world that we live in, and the struggles that we face, may we find hope in this journey. We thank you for where you've led us thus far, Lord, and how you've blessed our time. And we just pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So the goal tonight, oh listener, is we are we're gonna do this chapter just a bit differently. We're gonna break it up a little bit differently, and each each of our each of our guys here, we're going to be kind of driving the train at certain verses. So you'll hear me reading the verses, and I'll just toss it over to uh, to that particular personality and and he will unpack what the lesson what what that section says and what hope is there. So what's it teaching us these verses that will be read and then what hope do we find? And so that's that's kind of be the the format tonight. Again, a little bit different than our previous uh, previous five sessions in this series and if you're brand new to our series here with masterclass theology, I we, we recommend you go right you go ahead and keep listening tonight and enjoy but well, go back and listen to, to one, two, three, four, and five. A, a podcast is perfect to, to have on Bluetooth as you're jamming, going into work. You could be either listening to tunes or listening to something like this, or on the treadmill. Or yeah, a podcast is a wonderful opportunity uh, to, to just to, to involve your mind and your and listening and and faith comes through hearing. So this is a, a wonderful thing. So let's begin here um, with 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 the crockpot, John. Uh, so we are. going to launch off here into into Isaiah chapter 40. We just finished last week with Isaiah 33. And one of of the blessings for this podcast is is you and how you lead us in terms of our historical background. Is there anything that's been going on in Isaiah's day that the original readers, and original audience, they would have known implicitly? But what's been going on in the background before we get going into chapter 40?
1: yeah, thank you, Joel. Uh, first, just let the listener know. I tried to convince Joel to let us take a seventy year break between the last episode and this one so that the listeners could really grasp just on a really you know personal level what the uh, what the original audience would have had to go through in just this long period of of silence, many years of exile. Um, he didn't like that idea. I think you said something about not being alive in 70 years, which I I don't know, Joel, I, I fully disagree with that. Yeah, I, I plan on being there. At least 150 for you. So uh, anyway, so one week is all we got. Um, so in the last chapter, <laughs> uh, last chapter we did was chapter 33, which takes place during the Assyrians invasion of Judah. And we talked about how Judah's king Hezekiah, who is one of the good kings overall, he did more or less, what was good in the sight of the Lord, how the Judeans have made this probably foolhardy alliance with Egypt and how Hezekiah had basically bent over backwards for the Assyrians to make sure they didn't come and take over Jerusalem. So that situation reaches a climax in between chapters 33 and 39. Hezekiah does what he should have done from the beginning, which is instead of trying to buy peace with his enemies, he should have sought the Lord, humbled himself before God and prayed for deliverance. And that's ultimately what he does, thankfully. And so God protects Hezekiah and Jerusalem from the Assyrians. And he does this by personally killing 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. Seriously, read Isaiah 37. It's a, it's a wild story. Good stuff. But after, after this, <clears throat> Sennacherib, Assyrian king, heads back to Nineveh, the capital, tail between his legs, where he is shortly after killed by his sons. Okay. And this essentially concludes the arc of Assyria's involvement in Israel's history in the Bible. They're done. And chapter 39 starts the Babylon arc. Hezekiah then gets sick and some emissaries from Babylon come and pay him a visit. And they must really like schmooze him because he just seems instantly like enamored by them. They're like, hey Hez, we heard you were sick buddy how you feel you feeling better here have a present want to form an alliance and he's like okay and shows them everything in the city of any value and it kind of seems like he's making a similar mistake that was made with their earlier alliance with egypt that didn't pan out so well which isaiah was like dead set against from the beginning and so naturally isaiah is not too happy about this new alliance and here at this point he prophesies that the king that the that things will go south with Babylon, and Babylon will basically stab Judah in the back, but after Hezekiah is gone, after he's out of office, and here's the crazy and kind of chilling thing is Hezekiah's response. He says, basically, as far as I'm concerned, this is good news, because it means that as long as I'm king, we'll have peace, and that's the last thing that we hear from Hezekiah. After that line in Isaiah 39, he's never mentioned again in Isaiah. In 2 Kings 20, which is the where the parallel story is taking place, it goes straight from this quote about how, you know, it's it's fine with me, I'll have peace in my days. It goes straight from that to, and Hezekiah did some other stuff and then he died. So, oof, you know, not a strong ending for the king. And that's how we might call the first half If we want to think of like 1 through 39 as the first half of Isaiah. It's not exactly half, but like from a literary historical perspective, it's like the first, you know, main, it's like the first movement of the book. That's how it ends. This great cliffhanger where the prophet has just said that one day Babylon will come and take the Jews captive, take them into exile. And Hezekiah is basically shrugging his shoulders. So the next time Isaiah puts pen to paper, it's to tell the Jews in in, in Babylon, in exile, that the exile is almost over. So as you read through Isaiah, imagine there's this great big gap in between chapters 39. And in that gap is the collapse of this supposed uh, alliance with Babylon. And in that gap, there's the accession to the throne of a new king in Judah and escalating tension with Babylon and all-out war. And then the Babylonians carting off the Jews, all this stuff, plus decades of Jews living in Babylon, away from their home. All of that takes place in between Isaiah 39 and 40. Now, of course, it's recorded elsewhere in scripture. We get details of the Babylonian conquest at the end of 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. And then you get stories that take place in other books like Daniel and Esther and other prophets like Jeremiah join Isaiah in preaching to the captive Jews during that period. But I just wanted to point out that the silence that exists in Isaiah's book, don't, don't miss it. You know, Don't, don't just read over it there's a reason for it. And I think that it that what it does, at least in part is enables the readers to be sobered by all that has changed and all that has been lost in those silent years. And what a profound occasion we now have come chapter 40, the end of these exile days for a dose of hope from the prophet hope Mm -hmm. for redemption and deliverance. Finally, finally. So uh, that's a very, long explanation of where we're at now
0: but imagine if we didn't have that so so oh listener we just take that with you now you now know uh, as some of some of these verses in chapter 40 are going to be future oriented they're going to be you're they're looking at there's hope that's coming and that would have meant something to these people who are still in the thick of whatever they're going through and their geopolitical situation all these things in exile it's jerusalem has been by this time would have been leveled to the ground and where is god is he still in power because he doesn't have a temple anymore what's going on here there's just a lot going on and this is yeah this is a great chapter so we we, it's a wonderful chapter it's a very famous chapter so we're going to impact this together so let's begin here with verses one to five comfort comfort my people says your god Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, and cry to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And just as a reminder to go into this section, Mick, we're coming your way first. So, so, so remember, each 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 person we send this to is going to tell us, oh, listener, what what this what this section is essentially teaching us, and what hope is there. So, Mick, take away one to five. All right, thanks, Joel. Um, really quick, it's a
2: it's a worthwhile reminder to our listeners and the readers of Isaiah 40 that that it is it is a shift. From, from the previous chapter, the, the previous 39 chapters, as John explained very eloquently earlier. Um, the first 39 chapters addressed what, what were primarily current events. I mean, a quick for, for instance of this is, while well, there was a the prophecy of the virgin birth, birth, which back in chapter 7, there was also an immediate fulfillment to it, as well as the, the farther future foreshadowing dimension concerning the Messiah. So, in chapter forty onward, Isaiah addresses Judah because there is no more Israel at this point, uh, so it's just Judah now, the Southern Kingdom, as if though though she was already conquered by Babylon, uh, exiled and in captivity. This is this is one of the reasons why liberal scholars propose that it had Isaiah must have been written by multiple authors because they just can't believe, as Joel mentioned er, earlier. So many of the far-reaching, futuristic, and very detailed and precise prophecies that that are given here. Um, this stuff here in Isaiah 40 onward is about stuff that, that that's going to happen 80 years down the road and beyond. Um, all of this, by way of saying that that what makes this section especially cool is that it all, it is already looking forward to to that hope and comfort that that is going to come from God uh, that would. Um, first, there's, there's there's hope from the literal Babylonian captivity, and ultimately from the spiritual Babylonian captivity, which is basically every evil empire afterwards, you know, basically synonymous with, with Satan and his spiritual rule over this earth, and throughout the ages until Jesus' second coming, ends all, all of that uh, once and for all. Wars, it says here, will be ended. And more importantly to me, and I'll wager all of us, sins are forgiven. Um, if you look at verse three, this should be a very familiar passage to anybody who's a gospel reader. You know, as as we see the foretelling of the coming of John the Baptist as a forerunner for you know who, for for the uh, just right be, before Jesus makes the scene. You know, I mean that that's incredible when you think about it. Uh, th- this chapter, I mean, I, I, I mean, this is just a small taste of it, but this chapter really. It's shock filled with, with passages that you're going to recognize right out of the, the New Testament. I mean, this is really great stuff.
0: And we love that. This, this opening section reminds us that there will come a time when punishment ends. And mm-hmm. we who think we can't do anything right by God, or we're walking on eggshells with God, that God is always just out to get us, that that's just simply not the case. Yeah, There comes a time where punishment reaches an end. I love that. Well, thank you, Mick. That was one to five. We now go to six to eight. A voice cries, cry. Our voice says cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. John, will you you unpack
1: six to eight for us please? Sure, that phrase, all flesh is grass means all people are like grass. They're short-lived, transient, fickle, easily blown around and easily destroyed. So what Isaiah is saying is, if there's one thing the history of Israel has taught us, it's that people are not reliable. God in contrast is reliable. Therefore his word can be trusted. And not just his word in the general sense of like we can trust scripture, but the word that he spoke about the deliverance of the Jews from exile, i.e. verses one through five, this specific word from the, from the Lord is reliable. I don't know if there's such a thing as like a backhanded prophecy, but th- that's kinda, <laughs> that's kind of what this is, or a backhanded message of hope. Like the way Isaiah is conveying hope is by brutal honesty about how terrible people are. You know what I mean? He's essentially saying, as surely as people are like grass that is easily swayed and disrupted and withering under the least bit of trouble, as surely as that is the case, we have hope because God and the word he speaks is everything but that. The word of our God will stand forever. And by the way, I just wonder if any of the Jewish audience first hearing these words would hear that last phrase, the word of our God will stand forever, and think, huh, God's promises about deliverance from egypt definitely came true and here we're still talking about them we're still talking about that deliverance constantly there are constant Mm. references to that deliverance throughout the hebrew bible in other words they stand forever god's words stand forever his promises stand forever and a faithful response to that recognition would be to trust in the words of hope that isaiah is giving them now
0: Mm. amen I really wonder John how the how the original audience would have would have received this knowing that the temple of God had was no longer standing and but God's words yeah. stand
1: right that's an interesting I mean, question
0: I mean we when they're in exile and they're they're carted away well in 586 bc that that was when babylon came through they, they leveled the city and took down the temple yeah. and, I mean god's house wasn't there anymore god had no power anymore at least from an outside perspective because his temple's been knocked
1: down yeah. imagine like like all the all the churches are just destroyed today all the church buildings you know it's like okay we know they're just buildings but it'd still really shake you to your core and even more so then because the temple had, had such a such an incredible significance that's the dwelling place of god
0: just an outsider's perspective on okay. just, just looking from the outside, like, wow, your God must really have lost. I mean, not right. only did you lose, but your God didn't come through for you right. because you're an exile. And I mean, that that would be like an outsider looking in. But yeah. Wow. That's this is good stuff so far. Thanks, guys. So nine to eleven, go up, go on up to a high mountain. O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Is, is Jerusalem is now going to be the one who's going to share with all the rest of the cities around her, to all the suburbs or whatnot. Hey, the king is coming. There he is. This is the Lord God. This is, this is Adonai Yahweh. It's both of his names right here. Boom. He's coming. And he's coming with great victory, with, with majestic power. But God is not only the king, God is the king who cares. And I, I, love, I, I love this image because I, would o- I could only imagine Judah. So if, if, if the Hebrew for Judah is, is, is Yehuda, the Hebrew for Jew, we learned that in the book of Esther where they're first called Jews is Yehudi. So these Jews were largely Judahites. They're seeing their Judah no longer there anymore, ransacked or just hamlets and just cities of people who've been carted away and Jerusalem knocked to the ground, the temple destroyed, all except for uh, one, one wall, which we can find today. But yeah, God's going to come back? Did God really leave the, the, the great silence that John spoke of at the beginning of our podcast? Yeah. Where is this God of ours? Is he ever going to come back? Has he just had enough of this and left us? Do we still have hope? Are those promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob going to hold true? Is God going to keep his word? Is he still faithful? Is his word really going to stand forever? Well, he is coming back. And not only is he coming back in power, with prizes, with rewards, but he's coming to care. And I love the images he's got here. He's going to tend his flock like a shepherd. Okay, so there's a general care he's going to have for his sheep. Now he's going to gather the lambs in his arms. Wow. He's going to carry them. It's as if, um, I remember one of the first dogs we had where my wife, Jennifer, they had, she had a special relationship with that dog and that dog almost made 19, it's an old dog. Jennifer, my wife could hold that dog and she would calm down, the dog would calm down if she could hear Jennifer's heartbeat. There's something about being right there with her head right on her chest where she could hear Jennifer's heartbeat and she would calm down. Well, that's the image we've got here. He's bringing those lambs and holding them right to his chest. And then he's gonna lead in a very specific way as well for those who are vulnerable, for those who are weaker, who have special circumstances. And if that doesn't describe the the nation of Judah having to rebuild someday, he's going to gently lead those that have young. And so this is a king who's coming in power and victory, but a king who cares. And that is the very definition of our hope, especially we Christians who are looking forward to our king coming back again and who read Revelation 19, 11 to 21, and we start cheering that rider on the white horse. We're not shocked at all when Jesus is called the good shepherd. And so this, this, this is a great passage here, 9 to 11. But we continue here. If you don't mind, I'm going to scroll down so we can, I can see the rest of my page here. All right, this next section is going to be 12 to 17. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Mick, that's quite a section there. Would you help us with that, please?
2: All right. Well, I'll give it the, the good old proverbial try. So um, I, I got to say that this section is so appropriate for me to cover. Um, my formal name is Miguel, which is Michael in English, and hence why my 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 nicknames work, Mick or Mikey, or Mickey. Um, but but the reason I mention that more than anything is by way of saying that my name actually means "Who is like God?" That's the actual meaning of my name. Um, to which the answer is the uh, uh, nobody. Hmm. You know, there is nobody that is like God, and 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 there's a lot of that going on in these verses here. This passage also reminds me a lot of when God started questioning Job back in chapters 38 onward, especially when God asked them, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? In in my mind, there there are two really fundamental things going on here. First, God is all-knowing. Omniscient is the fancy term that that we use to encapsulate this idea that God knows everything. God is all-intelligent. He he is the fountain of, of knowledge and understanding. You don't Take my word for it, just look at the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. You'll see it is shock full of statements of that sort. You know, uh, the reason that we're even able to think is because God has actually provided the substance for us to think with and to think about. God ha- has determined and dare I say predetermined things solely on his own, with no counsel whatsoever, and, and to him be all the honor and glory. As such, there is no one that can tell God what's right or what's wrong, because he is the ultimate arbiter of all of that. God knows all and is in control of all things. The second thing, and, and this is from verses 15 onward, is that there is nothing we can offer God. We are powerless before him. Verse 16, even what piety we, 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 we have to offer God is nothing. Um, we, have nothing bef- we are nothing before him. Um, what worth we actually have, what, what value we have comes because from God himself, it's because he decides to make us valuable, you know, kind of like a collector. Why is a little cardboard picture of a, of a baseball player worth anything? Because somebody wants to give it value. Well, God does something far more important with us in that sense. God gives us value, okay? Uh, our worth, our dignity, it doesn't come from within us as if it were something intrinsically in us because of us. It comes because God has chosen to give it to us. Uh, and, and this ought to produce humility and gratitude in all of us. No, nope, no, nope, I, I misspoke there. Not ought, nothing. This better produce humility and gratitude in all of us.
0: Mm. Amen. 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 These, these verses just carry such meaning and power. Isaiah 40 hits a little bit differently than some of these other chapters do. But it's, it's just, there's something just majestic in scope about these verses. 18 to 24, again, pardon me on my end. You can't see this on your end, but I got I to scroll down so I can see. All right, 18 to 24. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol, a craftsman cast it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for its silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the earth, the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Wow. What does this section teach us, John?
1: So man, yeah, so much there, a lot to unpack. Isaiah is now speaking to a Jewish audience who are living in Babylon, right? And have been very closely exposed to, The ancient Near Eastern pagan religion that's practiced there, of which idols are a central part, like many of those religions. So he points out, you know, you've been conditioned to think of God as a wooden figure that someone has carved and overlaid with gold or silver. But that's not who God is. He says in verse 21, do you not know? Do Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? God is actually the one who presides over the earth and looks down and sees that its inhabitants are a little more than insects, et cetera, et cetera. So what's the point of all this? Isaiah is saying you can't separate God's character from his resume. And his resume involves presiding over the heavens and the earth. He is utterly separate and above any man-made deity. Yeah. Man, Mick, thank you so much for, for making that connection with uh, Michael or Michael or in your case Miguel who is like God and just uh, you know it just it raises that question who is like God (laughs) and I love your answer to that question too Um, yeah who who is like that God nobody he's he's utterly different and his who he is it, it involves stretching out the heavens like a curtain to create this universe for people to live in his, his character involves bringing the great rulers of the earth to nothing, to emptiness. Mm. Isaiah is a master at eloquently and yet very accurately building up God's resume for the sake of instilling hope in his listeners. Don't forget, though, that the original promise and announcement of hope in the opening verses in this chapter, remember, comfort, comfort my people. Your warfare is ended and your iniquity is pardoned. And he spends the rest of the chapter building up the character of God to remind his listener of who is making these promises and why they can be why they can be trusted. As surely as God created the world for people to dwell in and takes care of their needs and appoints rulers and judges and has authority over everything, he will deliver you and restore you to your home.
0: Amen. Yeah, and John, my apologies. It looks like I forgot to read verse 24. So I'll just throw it with, with my two. Two verses here, uh, but it didn't take, it didn't take away from your <laughs> your explanation. But yeah, I really I really like how uh, especially you know we're coming on election season, and, and I, I realize that when when elections happen in the political sense, there's a bunch of people who are satisfied and a bunch of people who are not satisfied. And especially when when people look at rulers and look at governments and they 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 grumble and they complain and they start to ask God, what the heck's going on? Well we're very comforting to know that he brings princes to nothing mm. and that the political systems of this world are not something that, that is outside of God's control. Right. And the rulers of the earth may, may, may be able to raise their heads now and bark a bunch of orders. And you can only imagine, you know, the, the whatever the emperor of Babylon, you know, the, the Nebuchadnezzars of the world. You, so it, it as, as, as the Judahites are in the midst of a foreign land, strangers in a strange land, you might say, as they, are, as they are not in the promised land anymore, they're carted away and at the whims of princes, he brings princes and there's something there. And that's, that's really great. I appreciate you uh, with your explanation. And there's just, there's, there's just a basic hope here that God's even above that. It's, the theological term would be like a divine like transcendence is that God is, is, is Isaiah's picturing God is not part of the creation, but sitting above. right? And God is, he's, he's like, he's transcended above all. And there's something inherently majestic about that. And this is the God who can provide. So we'll, we'll pick up verse 24 and we'll go 25 and 26. Scarcely are they, so he brings princes to nothing. Okay, so scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. So verse 25, to whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. And I, I think these verses would have, would have really, really hit hard, especially in as the the original judah the audience of of, of judah as they are in exile and they're in a land that is a very astrological land a very land of of zodiac reckoning a land that really cared and the deities were linked to the planets and the stars and later greek would greece would be like that especially rome would be like that and this is coming from you know originally you got a Persian idea coming along yeah a lot of their deities every single star had a special significance that the ones they could point out in the planets and the constellations. And, and yeah, even in the time of Christ, there was magi who were looking up on those stars and trying to find meaning and value. But that meaning and value of, of even, the ast- even the things in the heavens, those aren't gods. They're created by God. They're like part of God's creation. And he gave them a name. He's the one in control. He's the one who provides. And even the things that are so majestic, we, we later on would build telescopes and gaze at them. And we ponder what it would be like to travel amongst them. That's like nothing to God. God created them. And God called them all by name because he's the one who's strong in power. God is sovereign even over the very number on the stars. And it doesn't matter if that number is in the billions or more. He knows them all by name of all things. This is the kind of God we're praying to. And you think your problems are too big for God? He's counted the uncountable stars. He's named them. I mean, dang, that would have hit hard. The people in exile wondering where their God's at and what's he about and is, is he able to provide? Yeah, all these ast- all, all these heavenly beings that and, and things that... These 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 things in the sky that 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 their captors and overlords are worshiping. Judah worships the God who made them. That's that hits hard. That's 25 and 26. So now our final section here, 27 to 31, we're going to take this just a little bit differently. What we're going to I'm I'm going to read these verses in their entirety here, and then. Mick is gonna is, is unpack the teaching of it. And John's gonna unpack what hope is given here in these verses. So, I'll, so this last section is gonna go just a little bit differently. I'll speak, then Mick will speak, then John will speak. All right, 27 to 31. And most of you who are, are, are realizing we are in Isaiah 40, these are the verses that were on grandma's you know, fabric Bible cover when you were growing up. These are the verses that are very, very, very famous you would be upset at me if in our 10-session journey in Isaiah, we did not come here once. So here we are. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not, he does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Amen. Amen. All right, Mick. what a majestic little section here. What major things does this section teach us? All right, well, just so, so that we're clear on this, I am going to exercise
2: an awesome amount of restraint on the hopeful parts because we're going to be setting this up really nicely. But it's very easy to think in the midst of trials and persecutions that, that God must have forgotten us, as we saw in the opening verses here in 27, you know, that, that God doesn't see things. You know, it's very easy to lose sight of, of, of God's faithfulness uh it's very easy to forget that that what, what we talked about earlier that he is all knowing that that he is all powerful like you were mentioning joel he knows the name of every star he he knows numbers we haven't even thought about you know he's he's the sovereign creator god that he is if, if we're all honest we all go through moments like this i mean heck you know, when you think about it, and I'm just, I am just—I mean, this—I'm uh, going to tie this to the beginning of the of the chapter. You know, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, whom we read about earlier in verse three. Even John the Baptist, think about this. Even John the Baptist had his moment of doubt and pain. Even he did, and he's the guy that's prophesized in this very chapter. You know, and and God sees us. God understands us. He 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 gets us uh and he, if you don't believe me just just look at what he's saying here um just look at look at the book of the psalms what is the psalms if if it's not god speaking as one of us on our behalf he 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 really gets us and he hasn't forgotten us uh he, he hasn't abandoned us despite appearances to the contrary and that's that's kind of a big thing that he's hitting on here appearances may look that way but the reality is he hasn't Uh, so, so that's the part that, that God is telling us in this section, you know, is is that yes, things look bleak, but, and with that, I'm going to pass it on to Johnny.
0: And John, John's got our hope in this section.
1: I'm your only hope. Is that what you're saying?
0: That's what I hear. (laughs) Between you and Obi-Wan Kenobi. No pressure.
1: Yeah. Right. So, uh, three things. So the first thing. authority of god again we're we're hitting so hard on this he's so transcendent i like that word joel um he he has all authority creator of heavens and earth verse 28 says the lord is the everlasting god the creator of the ends of the earth by the way when a biblical author mentions two extremities like the ends of the earth the east and the west heaven and earth dan to beersheba they just they mean those two extremities and everything in between them. So it's a figure of speech, a common one, used to denote everything, the whole spectrum. Okay, so the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the whole earth, meaning in him there is, there is supremacy, there is authority to make these rich promises and be trusted by the ones to whom the promise is made. He hears them and he will make good on his promises because he is Lord God Almighty, King of the universe. Thing number two, the unfailingness of God. He shall not grow weary or faint. This kind of builds on the last thing, but not only does God have all authority, there is hope in his promises because he is a God of inexhaustible strength and power. And then number three, not only does God possess the attributes given above, but he's the kind of God who imputes those attributes to his people. He imputes that strength and that that unfailingness. Out of his unfailing capacities, he gives to his people the strength that they need so that they will not fail to be redeemed and enjoy his blessings. They will not fail to, to see that day. Just as he does not fail to deliver them, he holds on, he holds up his end of the deal and he will be faithful to sustain them too. And by the way, this is a very evident reality for us as Christians today. All that all that we have that is of any value. in the final judgment is that which has been given to us by our infinitely loving and powerful God. Jesus shares his righteousness with us. He shares his spirit with us. He shares his baptism with us. And yes, God shares his unfailing strength with us, so that we will not fail to be delivered from sin and death and judgment, as long as we trust in the work of Jesus. So sorry to, sorry to go all Calvin on you guys. I hope that was okay. Uh, but I'm just, I'm reading this, obviously, I'm reading this as a new covenant believer, right? I'm not saying that all these things about Jesus are actually in the, in the, the text and Messiah here. I'm just saying this is kind of, I have these categories for thinking about things. So like, that's, that's how I'm appreciating, or that's how I'm, um, that's how I'm understanding how the original audience might have appreciated it kind of on that same, that same level seeing the incredible joy and hope there is in being told God will strengthen you so that you shall not run and be weary. You shall walk and not faint. God has unbelievable gifts in store for you and he will be faithful to sustain you spiritually, if not physically, and to such an extent as though you're carried by Eagle's wings. I love that imagery Mm. until the the day that you get to enjoy those blessings in full.
0: Amen. This, this is a chapter like no other, and I'm very grateful for, for Professor D, for Mick and for the crockpot, for John and for the, the great blessings they gave us. Uh, this, this, this chapter um, it, it has a special special significance in my life um, and this is going to be it's, it's going to be a little emotional here for a second so the room might get a bit misty. Bring it on. Yeah, uh, over, it was about 10 years ago, Oh, 10 years, no, it'd have been 12 years ago. Um, so my my wife and I, we we had to bury our first child. She she lived for about 15 minutes and we we had a, a very difficult pregnancy. And so we had to, so daddy at that point, that's me and da- daddy, I was the lone, I was the lone, the lone pallbearer of the tiniest little casket imaginable. and and so we stood there, and my—I'll never forget—he's—he's he's now in heaven, so I, I can't thank him personally. I thanked him that day, but my my pastoral mentor and hero—he—he he cut his vacation short uh, to, to, come, uh, to to come to 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 Des and and come to it and do a service. I asked him, I said, "Would you please do a service for uh, my baby girl?" And because I wasn't—even though I'm a pastor—I was not, I was not up to the task. And so uh, my wife and I have have lost. Um, other children, and so the, the last child that, that we lost, you know, I was able to do that service, but I was not prepared uh, to, to, to do a service for little Esther at the graveside. And I'll never forget he read verses nine to 11 from Isaiah 40, and talking about how the shepherd who's going to come, who's going to deal tenderly with his people, he's going he's gonna to tend the lambs. He's going to hold them tenderly to his breast. And especially in this hit heart that day, he's going to be very gracious to those who have young. And there's hope. There's the king. And this, this chapter describes the king almost like no other chapter in the Bible describes the king. God is the king of kings. He is absolute. There's a transcendence here of the king. He's over it all. He's over the geopolitical systems. He's over all the machinations of man. He's over all these things. He's over all, he's, he's, there's no aspect of anything we can comprehend that God is not sovereign over or have power over. This chapter is just amazing with the idea that the, transcend, the transcend, transcendent power of God and where he's at, he's over, he sits above this. But what we love about this is the fact that there's a tension you might say the opposite of of the, the idea of the theological idea of divine transcendence is divine immanence. That God can be transcendent over his creation. And then also imminent as in existing within. So we see here, the King who's risen above it all, who's above all these things. He's powerful His arm accomplishes things, his voice accomplishes things. And that, Judah can completely trust in this God who's able to restore them. At some point, their punishment was going to be over. At some point, their exile was going to be over. There was hope. There was hope. There was hope. But there was hope because there's a king who's majestic, but he's a king who journeys with them. He's the king of Emmanuel, God with us. He's the king who is able to enter into our stories and, and give hope to our messes. He's not just some deistic entity who's above us all. Bette Midler got it wrong. He's not just some God watching over us from a distance. Oh, he's over us, but he's also with us. And we see that here. Or who is like this God? He's the everlasting God. But now he enters into our stories and gives us strength. He renews our strength. So as we sat there at at that little gravesite, looking down at a gravestone that was going to come, that would only have one date on it, a birth date and a death date the same day. My wife, who grew up Lutheran, she requested, and this and this this fits, and I'm probably not going to make it through without crying, but I'm do my best. She requested a hymn to be read. We didn't sing it. But as my friend Jerry gave us the seven to nine and the recompense is with him and the shepherd is coming, my wife requested an old Lutheran hymn that was only in German for a long time called I Am Jesus' Little Lamb. And I just want to read the three short verses of it because they're just dripping with Isaiah 40. I am Jesus' little lamb, ever glad at heart I am. For my shepherd gently guides me, knows my need and well provides me, loves me every day the same, even calls me by my name. So it's not just the stars. Day by day at home away, Jesus is my staff and stay. When I hunger, Jesus feeds me into pleasant pastures leads me. When I thirst, he bids me go where the quiet waters flow. Now verse three. There's a reason why Jerry was reading this and not me. Who's so happy as I am, even now the shepherd's lamb and when my short life, and when my short life is ended, by his angel host attended, he shall fold me to his breast, there within his arms to rest. That was read right over my little Esther's grave as her short life had ended. That's the promise we have. The great tension between God's transcendence and God's imminence is present in Jesus, our Messiah, the one who is all God and all man, the one who uniquely enters into our stories and gives us hope, who in him we have forgiveness, that we're not just going to experience divine punishment for our sins. He's our Emmanuel. He's the ultimate, full, and final fulfilling of all this. I love how John led us there. Mick, I love how you set that table. This is the hope that now we have. Thank you for joining with us tonight in Isaiah 40. This chapter means a lot to me. It gives us so much hope. I thank you for Professor D and for Crockpot and their guidance along the way. We'll see you next week. This has been Masterclass Theology. You, As always, I'm Big Rev.
1: And I'm Professor D. I'm Crockpot.
0: Thank you. God bless. this has been Masterclass Theology. I pray you've been challenged and encouraged during today's episode, and I hope you'll continue to join us as we journey through the Bible. God bless.